And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. I'm Richard Reeves, and I am the biographer of John Stuart Mill and president of the American Institute for Boys and Men. I have a piece in Persuasion titled J.S. Mill versus the Post-Liberals. Mill died 150 years ago this year, and on his deathbed said to his stepdaughter, you know that I've done my work. And Mill's work wasn't just the work of an intellectual, although he's most famous for that work, of course, including his essay on liberty, but also for, for contesting for, for fighting for liberalism in Parliament, in Hyde Park, in many of his debates. Mill, as a 19th century liberal, was used to a world where the arguments for liberalism were far from self-evident and had to be argued and, and fought for. And to that extent, he's, uh, again, a man of his time, because we're in a world now where the arguments that Mill made, for example, for free speech and the arguments for the ways in which traditions and customs could be actually tyrannical if we weren't careful are being fought over again. So his famous argument for free speech and on liberty was based on the idea that really was about listening as much as speaking, that we needed to articulate other views so that we could contest our own views. And of course, because the other view might be right, and that it's in that creative collision that the value of free speech is found. He also is under attack today from post-liberals like Patrick Deneen and Adrian Vermuli, as I describe in the, in the article, that they're really constructing a caricature of Mill, not, not even a straw man, but, but just a pile of straw, frankly, in their view and their argument that Mill argued against any traditions, any customs, that every day for everybody was going to be an experiment in living and that we should throw out all ideas of learning and custom. And that's not what Mill argued. Mill actually wrote that it would be absurd to pretend people ought to live as if nothing whatever had been known in the world before they came into it. Mill's view was not anti-tradition, anti-custom per se. Mill's view was simply that we had to be able to revise and interpret those customs and traditions in our own way. In other words, how do we balance the role of learning, tradition, custom, with the need for individuals to live their own version of the good life? And that's the right question that liberals should be asking. And it's the right question that post-liberals should be challenging us on, rather than the straw man version of Mill that they've created today. So by being wrong about Mill, they're wrong about liberalism and therefore wrong about, well, pretty much everything. Richard Reeves' piece called J.S. Mill versus the Post-Liberals was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Colin Woodard. Colin is a longtime journalist and foreign correspondent who is the author of a number of best-selling books, including most famously, American nations. We discussed his idea that the way to understand American politics today uh, really involves seeing the ways in which uh, different parts of the country were, were founded in very different circumstances by very different cultural groups. He thinks of it as 11 different nations that help to understand the regional variation in the United States. We discussed uh, the kind of tension between a concern for individual freedom and a concern for the public good that has uh, stemmed from those kinds of differences. And we think, finally, about what would be required for America's national narrative 
in its sense of uh, civic patriotism and constitutionalism, which has at times been able to hold the nation together to be more effective, more powerful, more widely appealing than it currently seems to be. Colin Woodard, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, when I look at American politics at the moment, and in many ways, American public discourse as well, it just feels very deeply divided and polarized and fractious. And one of the things that I'd love you to help me think through is how abnormal is that? Is this just unusual relative to the uh, decades uh, after World War II when the country felt relatively more cohesive, for that itself is an oversimplification if you think of the 1960s, for example? Or is it part of the cause? Is there nothing that unique or unusual about this very fractious feeling moment we're going through? Yeah, we're in a very difficult spot now. I mean, a crisis point where you know, the Federation and the Republic could fall. It's entirely conceivable. Hopefully not. I don't think it will. But we're in one of those spots like the 1850s where things are particularly bad. But broadly speaking, you're absolutely right. The divisions in the country and the fact that the divisions tend to be geographical and orientation is a longstanding essential property of the United States. It's our fundamental weakness and the great challenge that everyone from the people who gathered to, you know, create a, you know, a, a, a command during the American Revolution to fight the American Revolution, to those who gathered to try to create a constitution to hold us together, to all of the struggles of the antebellum period and the Civil War, you know, it, it all comes to the fact that we're actually this balkanized federation of separate, you know, nations, if you will, but separate regional cultures that don't really see eye to eye and never did. And this goes to sort of really the theory that made your name as a commentator on American politics. You were well known as a foreign correspondent and somebody who was reporting on Central and Eastern Europe before. But the idea that America really is a conglomerate of these 11 distinct nations. Walk us through that idea briefly. Why is it helpful, first of all, to think of America as really being constituted by these 11 different groups and tribes of origin, rather than of thinking of ourselves as a new kind of nation? Yeah. For a long time in our history, Americans recognized this. I mean, it was just a fundamental fact and obvious. If you ask people in the 1770s or the 1810s or the 1830s what country they were from, they would say Massachusetts or South Carolina. They would only say American in the sense that a German or French person would say that they're European, right, in the context of the wider world. We lost that later on. But to know that, that there were rival colonial projects that were formed on the eastern and southwestern rims of what's now the United States, those projects were set up at different times by very different groups of people. They had different religious and ethnographic and political characteristics, different ideas about the perfect society, about the economy that they would create, all of these things. And they, through the colonial period and up really into the 1840s, settled mutually exclusive swaths of what's now the Middle West, you know, going out beyond the Mississippi River and other parts of the country. About, you know, four-fifths of our landmass was colonized by one or another of these separate streams. And they brought with them different fundamental ideas about institutions, society, and the good life. All the stuff that 
anthropologists would think of as culture. Now, once you realize that, and you realize that those settlement streams didn't follow state boundaries often, it suddenly clicks. You know, all these things about our history, our constitutional arrangements, and our current county-level maps of elections, of COVID-19 vaccination rates, of, you know, per capita gun homicide rates, all these things you look at follow these same tectonic plate curves. And so it allows you to go, oh, that's what's going on here, and to start understanding the nature of the problem. Again, these are things that wouldn't have surprised people, you know, 150, 175, 200 years ago, but we lost that knowledge along the way, and it causes our country to be running a little bit blind in terms of the nature of the challenge and the ways we might go about overcoming it and holding ourselves together. What is the nature of these constitutive nations? I think you enumerate 11 of them. You know, a moment ago, you were talking about people would have said, I'm from Massachusetts or I'm from Virginia, but there was more than 11 original states. So clearly, the nations you're talking about don't neatly map onto original states. You're thinking about them more in terms of cultural background and origin and so on. So how did you come up with this idea of these constitutive nations? And, you know, what are the most important ones of them? Right, because the New England colonies were the outgrowth of the Puritan experiment in New England, right? You had this enormous group of Puritans who came, who thought they were in a covenanted relationship with God, like the Old Testament Hebrews, that they had been charged with doing certain things in the world, and they needed to know them as a group, and they would be punished or rewarded as a group for that. And that's the dominant cultural framework of the people who came to Massachusetts Bay and then absorbed, essentially annexed and conquered their rivals, the old colony, the Pilgrims in Cape Cod, the royalist settlements that have been set up in Maine, pulls New Hampshire and Connecticut into their orbit, and then extends their influence when the Dutch are defeated in the 1670s and New Netherland becomes New York, the upstate of New York. Much of it was rewarded to Massachusetts by deed. It was New York Territory, but the Commonwealth of Massachusetts owned the land and settled it. The Connecticut, when Ohio became a state, Connecticut had a claim to that section of Ohio. And so they were also given, the state of Connecticut, the deed over that land. And so Connecticuters organized the settlement of the Western Reserve of Ohio, the strip along the north around Cleveland, which has a very different, even today, political behavior and the like, and the upper Midwest states. So that's all one greater New Englandish cultural zone with the ideals eventually tying back to the particular idiosyncrasies of the Puritan experiment in New England held forth ideas about the role of government, about the relationship of church and state, about individual freedom versus the common good, but only in those areas. And so all of these areas, if I understand rightly, are one of these 11 constitutive nations. Correct. So this is all one area, and the people of Massachusetts were entirely within that cultural zone. And in that era that I was talking about, a rival place, like around the Chesapeake, was founded, yes, by English people, yes, at roughly the same time in the early 17th century, but it wasn't founded by these Puritans thinking of themselves on a utopian, you know, God-sanctioned errand in the wilderness. It was set up by the second, third, fourth, fifth sons of the English minority families, right? The Lord Granthams, if you will, of the, of the 17th century, who weren't going to inherit the estate at home. But suddenly, the presence of all this land in the New World meant they could conceive of creating new manor estates for themselves. So they went there and were trying to recreate the society of the English countryside. 
So before we move on to these other nations, because I do want to cover some of these other nations, it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that you started off with the Puritans, because they are one of the original settler groups and they're, in many ways, the one that has proven most influential. I'm currently in Germany, and I'm always struck that Europeans think of America as deeply Puritan. It's a sort of cultural cliche that you will hear all of the time. But I wonder whether they are misidentifying what aspects of American culture are Puritan or even where Puritanism prevails. I think if Europeans think of America as Puritan today, they have in mind the Bible Belt or a certain kind of evangelical culture, and then they probably exaggerate how influential that is through the United States, right? So they think, oh, these Americans, they don't want to have sex before marriage, and there's people who are still deeply religious, which of course doesn't exist in Europe, and I'm caricaturing. And that's really where the Puritanism is. Now, in your argument, the Puritanism should still be found in New England and so on. But these, of course, are today places that are far less religious, that in those traditionalist cultural terms have gone very far from the ancestors, who certainly don't think that it is a sin to have gay sex, who certainly don't think that it is a sin to have sex before marriage, who are probably much more pro-choice than many of their compatriots. And so I wonder where you would situate this Puritan inheritance today. In my mind, where I would look for it, and I wonder if you agree with me, is in a certain kind of moral absolutism, or if you want to say it less politely, in a kind of moral rigidity, right? I mean, the inheritance of Catholicism in Italy is that you have an understanding that people are flawed and they sin and, you know, they might have to be punished in some kind of way, or they might need to feel a little bit of social disapprobation, but then the fact that humans are flawed and hypocritical is part of how we think about human nature, and they can very easily be reabsorbed into polite society as well, with both good and, if you look at Italian politics, some very bad consequences. It seems to me that where the particularly sort of New England American elite, which has this Puritan inheritance, still has a point of continuity of its history, it's not in the specific views, which constitute the moral boundaries of a community, but with a kind of rigidity with which every good person lives up exactly to the moral guidelines of a community. And if you don't, then you should really be cleansed from the community. And our community is going to be impure unless we make sure that you have been expelled from it. You know, this is amateur history and sociology, but what do you think of my little theory? Yes, I mean, you raise a good point. There's three things I would say very quickly. One is that the reason that people think of America as Puritan, especially from a distance, is because for cultural reasons, the Yankee New Englanders dominated the conversation and the intellectual world of the United States up until at least the mid-20th century. So here's a society that, for theological reasons, believed that people had to be literate and read the Bible themselves. And so the moment they got to the frontier, they were creating taxpayer-financed public schools that people had to go to, creating in the 17th and early 18th centuries the probably the most literate society on the entire planet. And the upshot of that is that meant that because you had a literate population, you ended up having printing presses and libraries and universities and schools and all of the instruments of 
cultural production, whereas the other regions didn't have any of these things, right? If you were in the Deep South, if you were a wealthy gentleman, you sent your kids to, you know, boarding school or you hired a tutor. And if you weren't rich, well, tough luck. You're not going to get any education. So that meant that you fast forward into the early American period, all of the effort to create a national story for ourselves was completely dominated by, you know, Harvard and Yale intellectuals who were, of course, aggrandizing their ancestors and pretty much airbrushing all the other regional cultures out of the picture. And the initial story about who we are was all tied to that. So it's not a surprise that people make that mistake because Americans themselves were making that mistake until 75 years ago, because again, for cultural reasons, it is a mistake to think that the you know, evangelical, intolerant sort of world of the deep South and greater Appalachia is Puritan in any way. It's a totally distinct cultural tradition. And where the Puritanism comes, we could talk at length as to why the Puritan strict religious experiment carried the seeds of its own demise over time. But what lasted from that was the notion that you can create a better society here on earth and that that is the priority and that individuals, you know, Calvinism regarded individuals as, again, being inherently flawed. We're kind of wicked. You got to keep an eye on each other to keep us on the good path. And that we all in the community, because we're going to be rewarded or punished collectively for what we do, need to keep an eye on each other. The danger to the project we're all involved in is individual avarice and individual rising up and messing things up or becoming a tyrant over us, right? So the whole conversation about individual liberty versus the common good is way over on the common good side compared to anywhere else in America. And the faith in shared institutions and shared self-government, that government is thought of as us, not as an oppressor, is strongest in New England. That has all sorts of ramifications for everything about society and politics, and it ties back to a Puritan heritage. Now, you go to the evangelical zone where you're talking about those moral qualities, it's almost the opposite of that. In that zone, Greater Appalachia in particular is the center of that movement. And Greater Appalachia, it's bigger than the Appalachian Mountain Ranges. It's, it's the Upland South. It's the southern parts of the lower Great Lake states in the Ohio Valley. It extends into the Ozarks of Arkansas and the Hill Country of Texas. This was all settled by the same group of Scots-Irish-dominated settlers, a group of people who prized individual autonomy and personal liberty and saw government from their own historical experiences back in Ulster and the lowlands of Scotland as being a tyrannical force, that it's all about individual freedom. And anytime you give government any powers, they're going to tyrannize you. That carried over into the religious realm where it's the thrust of those religions is all, it's about your personal relationship with the divine, with God, right? Often unmediated, you actually had a connection. You don't have a Harvard-educated clergy telling you about how to you know, lead a moral life and how the universe is organized. You have some charismatic neighbor who, like you, doesn't have any education, who had a religious experience and is going to come bring you all as equals to that experience. This world is corrupt. Pay no attention to it. It's all about the hereafter and the next life. Right? The opposite of the orientation of the period and experience. So I guess what I'm saying is, yes, there is a Puritan function in a large stretch of what's now the United States. And that group had an oversized influence in the creation of the national myths of the United States and its ideologies. But it is not at all 
the origins of the evangelical culture of the South, the moralism and sort of intolerance that you're describing that many people in the outside world see, that comes from a completely different and very unpuritan tradition. Yeah, I mean, I guess certainly the overt moralism of this more evangelical parts of a country or of, you know, whether it's Appalachia, which you talked about, or the Bible Belt, which I sort of invoked earlier, does not come from Puritanism. Whether there's a new form of moralism, which is not about telling you not to have sex before marriage, but which is about the cultural sensibility of the elite that still continues over proportionally to be schooled in the fancy colleges and universities of New England, I think is a different kind of question. But 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 you've started to mention these other nations, so I would love to hear a little bit more about them. So it sounds like sort of the second nation that you're talking about was the sort of third and fourth born sons of the English aristocracy, where, you know, the first son presumably inherits the estate and the second son might go off to the church and perhaps some son might go off to the military. But if all of that fails and there's nothing left for you to do, you might come move to New York or something like that. Well, even better, you had no options other than the ones you described before, but the discovery of the new world, suddenly you could move to Virginia and carve out a thousand acre state and start building your own manor modeled on the manor seats at home. I see. Where did that group end up being dominant? Is that essentially the slave-owning families of the South, or where, where would you situate the origin of those families? The South and the slave-holding South are two different cultures, really. And this one is the area around the Chesapeake. So it's much of lowland Virginia, but not the mountains, which becomes greater Appalachia. And it's the southern parts of Maryland, the eastern shore, you know, the south of D.C. or what's now D.C., eastern North Carolina, and the lower two counties of Delaware, basically this area. And now it's a region that is disappearing and disintegrating because of the presence of the federal government. We can talk about that. But in the colonial period in the early republic, this was by far the most powerful region of all. It had more people and more wealth and more everything than any other area, especially Virginia, which was the core of it. And Virginia, back you know, in the time period where I was saying people would describe themselves as Virginians, the Tidewater Virginians controlled everything in Virginia politics. They even designed representation and districting in the House of Burgesses to ensure that those, quote, dirty and awful and uncivilized Scots-Irish people in the backcountry wouldn't have any power in Virginia. It was a society run by these aristocrats trying to reproduce what they left behind, inherently a conservative and aristocratic society, which is why when you fast forward to the revolutionary period, you have, you know, People like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and James Madison with these grand, you know, enlightened gentlemen on their grand estates. But the problem there in that Tidewater zone is they tried throughout the 17th century, but there was no one who really wanted to stand in for the role of the peasantry and the serfs. Nobody would do it in the American context. They tried indentured servants, but when the indentures finished, they wanted their own land and would run off. And eventually they turned to a model that had been perfected to their south of a full-on race-based slave system around 1700 is when the real pivot happens. But the society they were trying to create was this monarchical society where people had these obligations to one another, but naturally the nobility, the gentry, the aristocracy were the people in charge, but that they had some kind of moral duties to the people beneath them, at least in their own heads. And then there's a totally separate society in the Deep South that has none of those origins that we can talk about separately. Yeah. So talk me through the origins of that part of the United States. So the Deep South and its 
hearth or beachhead was around Charleston and South Carolina. And then it spread out through, you could think of it as the cotton South versus the tobacco South. You know, the Chesapeake country is the tobacco South. The areas of South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, and Eastern Texas, the far west of Tennessee around Memphis, about half of Arkansas, much of Florida was all settled from a settlement movement that started in the Charleston area and spread through all those areas where you could practice plantation agriculture with slaves. And the people who arrived right off the boat, literally the first people setting up the society, were English slave planters from the West Indies, from the island of Barbados, where they had, during the course of the 17th century, perfected a most horrifying you know, slave system, chain gangs, work your labor supply until they're dead because the calculus of the value of sugar and replenishing the dead bodies had all been perfected and had made themselves staggeringly wealthy. So wealthy that these upstarts, you know, who made their fortunes in Barbados were going back to England and buying country manors and offending everyone. They were the nouveau riche there. They had so much money, they didn't know what to do with it, but they also had run out of land on Barbados. And then the Carolinas opened up as a colony in the subtropical lowlands of what's now the North American mainland. And they just transplanted their West Indies-style full-on slave plantation society right into those subtropical lowlands, and it spread. And the notion was not that they had any obligation to those beneath them. They weren't from those gentry families originally. They were oligarchs, essentially They believed that they had won a libertarian struggle of the fittest on Barbados, and to the winner go the spoils. So it was a society organized to benefit the people at the top, right? This is our society. There'll be no representation. We have the slave system. We'll control everything. And anyone who stands in our way, we'll (laughs) get rid of. So this oligarchical society from the beginning without those pretenses of being enlightened gentlemen with all of those supposed niceties of uh, the manorial system in England. And so two very different Souths from the very beginning. And it's from that model, which the beachhead started in the 1670s in the Deep South. It's from that model that the Tidewater aristocracy turns when it's clear that they can't find any other way to have a peasant supply. They start modeling the Deep South circa 1700. So now we've gone through five or six nations, I believe, and we're still pretty much on the East Coast. What does that look like as we move further west? Right. Well, there's a Dutch settled zone right around what's now New York City that has its own qualities. There's a area that was settled by the Quakers under William Penn initially around Philadelphia and the Delaware Valley, all on the East Coast. And that's a society that was multicultural from the beginning. Many people can come, have their cultures side by side. That's fine with the Quakers. And here we are. So they had these several models happening, and they all were moving east to west in settlement bands with the Scots-Irish and stuff, which spreads over much of the continent. Then you have from south to north in what's now the southwest of the United States, you had the far extensions of Spain's colonial project in the Americas, which was extending from what's now Mexico into the American Southwest and spread over parts of Texas and a lot of New Mexico and the lower part of Arizona and parts of California. But those are the only areas that the Spanish actually colonized before annexation. And those areas have a entirely different settlement history, a different history from the rest of Mexico, the North, including the Northern states of Mexico and this part of the United States are all, you know, in Mexican history have always been 
more entrepreneurial, more pressure to democratize, less hierarchical societies because they were frontier places. I mean, it was so remote when they were settling these places, you know, in the late 16th and early 17th centuries with the technology available then, it was like they were lunar bases. They were so far from Mexico City and Madrid and Cadiz that the societies took on their own characteristics. They were much more fluid. They were fluid in terms of racial terms about if you were indigenous or not, did that matter? And it didn't there because everyone had indigenous blood there and there, there wasn't those kind of arguments. So it was just a very different society and was the place that in Mexican history, the area that was always trying to break off from Mexico and become a third federation between the United States and Mexico. So in many respects, that's still true today. It's just, it's a society that's divided kind of like Germany during the Cold War, right? One society basically with a wall running between it. So that's what I think you call El Norte, which is a nice way of describing the southernmost part of the United States. What about the places you call the Midlands and the Far West? And then eventually, once we get to California and Northern California in particular, the left coast. Sure. So the Midlands is that Quaker zone that started in Philadelphia, Delaware Bay, Southern New Jersey, Northern Delaware, and then spread with the settlers between the Scots-Irish Greater Appalachian Settlement Zone and the Yankee New Englander ones, there's a middle path that cuts through the middle of Ohio and Indiana and Illinois and much of the northern parts of Missouri and then spreads out fan-like into Iowa and much of the Midwest. And that's like the heartland, you know, middle American culture that people identify with that's politically moderate, often even apathetic, where there's not supposed to be one ethnocultural group in charge where community matters a lot, but there's also great skepticism of government intervention. You know, the people who initially founded this culture were Quakers and people fleeing and taking advantage of the Quakers' open immigration policy. So you had, you know, Anabaptists, right? Mennonites and Amish, and then Germans from the 48 revolutions, you know, first Palatinates and then 48ers, all sorts of people whose experience in the old country had been of despotic governments they were fleeing. So they didn't trust that government is a good force, but they trust it in community. So that gets you through those cultures that started in the East, and that gets you the Southwest. You still have about a fifth, two-fifths of the country that is unaccounted for so far in the interior West and the West Coast. And those are what I call the second-generation cultures, right? They were colonized by outsiders much later than the ones we just described. Like, after 1850 is the effective settlement for those places. And in, unlike all the cultures we've described before, which are the product of some idiosyncratic group from outside North America coming and setting out a society, these last two second-generation cultures were colonized by the others. It's secondhand. So there's two of them. The first one to be colonized effectively is the coastal strip on the Pacific, starting at around Monterey, California, and running north on the coast side of the mountains all the way up to Juneau, Alaska. So you're talking San Francisco Bay region and up through you know the coastal side of the mountains where Portland, Oregon are and Seattle and up through uh, you know Vancouver and Victoria Island and eventually up into the Juneau area. And that was colonized essentially by two groups. There were Yankee New Englanders arriving by sea and trying to continue their Puritan mission, so to speak, of creating a more perfect society, creating a Massachusetts on the Pacific, they described it as. And they founded Stanford and Berkeley and all these institutions to be units of cultural production and to win over the Pacific for this New England ideal. 
However, there was a second settlement stream just as big that was arriving at the same time, the hard way, which at that time was overland by wagon, essentially from the greater Appalachian settled parts of the lower Midwest. And that group of people were the fur traders and miners and woodsmen who were coming and dominating the countryside. And it created this hybrid society. It's been the ally of Yankeedom. It's the bluest of the regions in a sense, but it's not the same as the Yankee space, right? Because it took that utopian idea that we can create a better society and should, but it merged it with this greater Appalachian emphasis on individual self-actualization. And so it's a fecund combination because think about it, that region's probably got population, maybe 25 million, you know, like size of Romania. And yet think of all of the global spanning companies that dominate the entire planet's life today that are based in it. You know, Amazon, Google, Facebook, Twitter, all of Silicon Valley, and so on and so forth. Apple, they're all based in that zone. So it's a very fecund combination. It also, in any way you look at it, has all of its preferences, its political voting patterns, its attitudes towards everything from, you know, gay marriage ballot initiatives to marijuana legalization, anything you look at, it completely disagrees with the interiors of the states and provinces I just described, with interior British Columbia, with the rest of Alaska, with the interior of Washington State and of Oregon and of California. And that's because on the other side of the mountains, this vast zone of the interior intermountain west and the Great Plains, when you get to the point where you need irrigation for agriculture to survive, that area was colonized at a time when it was just so remote and dangerous and distant from markets and arid and all these other things that the technology of the late 19th century made it impossible for individual settlers to arrive and survive and, and really function. You actually had to deploy industrial scale capital and infrastructure before settlement was really possible. And so in that region was a giant resource colony where settlement and colonization was guided by the railway companies and mining companies and you know the federal government and their control over land and the creation of irrigation projects, with the one exception of the Mormon experiment, which we get into as an enclave. But because of that, this is a region where the one region of the area of the entire continent where environment really did trump ethnography. And it's created a, because it was exploited by everyone else as this resource colony, it's had this dependent status, which the people of the far West have, of course, been very resentful of. And they've, you know, focused their resentments in the past, either on their corporate masters, on the, you know, Anaconda Copper and Union Pacific Railways and the Hearsts and all the rest, which is why you had these big progressive movements in the far West in the 1940s. But then they're also turned against the federal government, which controls much of the land in all of those states and is seen as a, you know, a, a danger and an oppressor. So that's led them to shift politically. It's not that reliable partisan. It's currently in the red coalition, but it's a weak red state partner because it lacks, it doesn't have that same strong evangelical base that you have in greater Appalachia and the deep South. It's a little bit more honestly libertarian in its ethos rather than a morally compromising one, which makes it a little bit of a, a weak partner in the current Republican coalition. So let me step back from this really fascinating set of ideas and insights. I think of your work as a really powerful prism to look at the United States and its history and the way in which its history influences its current politics. But inevitably, those kinds of powerful prisms also have lacunas. They allow us to see certain kinds of things, but 
there's also always a danger that they overemphasize certain things when underplay others. And so let me push you on two things. I'd love to, I've been wondering how you would respond to those. So, you know, the first is that because your focus is on the original founders of these different parts of a country, I wonder whether there's a tendency to downplay the influence of later arrivals. So one obvious group to make this point about is that African-Americans have been one of the first groups to arrive in the United States. Probably the average African-American today can trace or could trace if the documents existed, the ancestors back as far or further than the average white American. But there isn't a black nation in your account or there isn't a sort of clear geographical area for you to acknowledge that influence because they're not the founding group anywhere. They're not the group that is numerically dominant anywhere. And one could make the same point for the deep influence Latinos have had, not just in El Norte, where you sort of naturally talk about it, but at this point in, in many other parts of the United States as well. You could think about it in terms of not just the Scotch-Irish that helped to found of greater Appalachia, but also the way in which Irish and Italian immigrants have transformed Boston, Massachusetts, and so on. So, So how do you deal with these groups that from the perspective of the original settlers of these various parts of the United States appear to be later arrivals? How do you think, just to add one more group of Asian Americans in California? Excellent question. One should raise in all of these things. So academically, this is based on the work of cultural geographer Will Berzelinski, who asked when a new culture forms, either in a place where there weren't any people before, or where somebody has pushed out, conquered, or destroyed the people who were there, how does a new culture get underway and self-perpetuate over time? And his answer is that first settler effects matter, that the first group of people who settle an area successfully and create a self-perpetuating society, the characteristics of that group of people will have an outsized influence on the future direction of that society, even if their numbers were very small compared to the, those who came later. And I think that that is basically true worldwide. Immigrants come and have changed Germany and have changed England and France, but there's still something underlying that is French and German and English or whatever you want to look at in addition to that. So society and culture changes, but the fundamental notes behind it remain consistent over time. Make the argument that that's been true in North America. We're not an exception. We work like humans do elsewhere. And you can see that in the first settler effects. If you map where those settlers went when they sort of formatted the hard drive and created the cultural assumptions that the rest of us encountered when we came there, either because we moved from a different region of the country or we came from another country altogether, the paradigm would say over time, the cultural forces will win out. Maybe not on you or I. You know, if I move to France today, everyone will know I'm not French, not only because my French is terrible, but it'll be obvious in many ways. And I'll probably never really be French, but if I married and I had kids, well, they're probably going to be bicultural, bilingual anyway. And then the grandkids are almost certainly going to be French, knowing that theoretically they're French Americans and they remember that their granddad spoke English and stuff. But that's how it works in society, right? Over three generations, the culture tends to win out. So you describe the Italians and Irish coming to Massachusetts. Absolutely. I mean, you look at Yankeedom, when the Census Bureau asks, 
what religion are you? It's all Catholic, every single county almost on the entire Yankee map, because the Yankeedom during the great 19th century immigration waves welcomed immigrants to work at their factories, insisted they assimilate, you had to become like us, and worked hard to do so, but that was where many of the immigrants went. But you fast forward to now, and the political attitudes of those groups if you were to take some segment, whatever you want to look at, Irish or Greek Americans, you know, now five, six, seven generations along, you'll find that statistically the political preferences that they have and cultural preferences and polling will match Yankeedom if they move to Yankeedom and will match the Deep South if they move to Deep South. In other words, the culture wins over time, which is how JFK can be your quintessential New Englander, you know, New England Yankee politician when he was from the once, you know, despised and derided Irish Catholic minority. It's just how things work over time with humans everywhere. The other point you raise, that African-American influence in the United States is absolutely massive, including you know, the key role played in creating the best of our national narrative and fighting for it. I mean, it's an enormous force, but when we're talking about dominant regional cultures, the tragedy of the African-American experience writ large is that they weren't allowed to participate in the dominant culture as equals, that in Tidewater in the Deep South, where almost all of the initial settlement waves were brought in chains, they were societies organized where they were enslaved in a race-based slave system, followed by a formal caste system backed by law and vigilante bans until living memory, right? Until the 1960s. So, I mean, that is not a dominant culture that was designed with African-Americans in mind. If they'd been able to, as a group, design the culture, it would have none of those features. So that's a tragedy. It's not a value statement. But you better believe that deep Southern culture in all kinds of ways outside of the model of power in society is highly influenced by African-Americans having been there. Everything from language and food and music to ways of being and everything else. It's an enormous force, but the characteristics that were placed down a top-down society with minimizing government and regulation and taxes that affect the wealthy and all the rest, that's all still centered in the Deep South. And you have a divide in the Deep South still. Political behavior and race correspond very tightly, especially because of the legacy of a racial caste system. All of those things, the fundamental characteristics of the Deep South today are because of that system that was created. And so, yes, you can't ignore that. But the tragedy is, yeah, they didn't have a dominant regional culture by design of the slave lords. That all strikes me as a strong response. I would be interested to see whether you have a case in mind in America where the original group's influence has weakened much more than in others, which is to say that I buy the basic premise that when you are founding a new society, the people who set up the basic norms, mores, institutions are going to have an outsized influence, even if in the totality of people who arrived to the territory, they have become the minority over time. That seems plausible to me. But surely some of the other things also matter a lot. The ethnic composition that you have with people coming from very different cultures, very different parts of the world over time. It makes a difference whether you're today 80% white, 50% white, whether most of the immigrants or most of the minority groups, African in origin, Asian in origin, Latino in origin, that surely has to have an influence. And there are, of course, some common institutions that get founded 
which must be somewhat homogenizing. The fact that all of the United States does share a certain set of educational, political, and so on institutions surely matters. And the fact that people move around a lot in the United States today surely matters. So, you know, is there an example where you would say, well, look, you know, to understand what Boston is like today, you go back to the Puritans and it just really helps you understand it. But you know what? In this part of the United States, the culture has evolved so much that perhaps looking back at what the founding nation was is somewhat helpful, but it tells you a lot less than it does in Boston, for example. Right. If you think about this as a hypothetical construct, where will a model based on first settler effects be weakest? And the answer will be in places where the first effective settlement took place not that long ago, and the first effective settler group was very tiny in numbers, and a massive number of people not of that settlement group came subsequently. So essentially that the first settler effect was weak, and recent, so didn't have much time to perpetuate. And then there was a giant wave of people who came next. That should be the scenario wherein we should see first settler effects collapse. So where on the map is that true? Well, the further you get from the eastern and southern rims of the U.S., settlement was taking place uh, later and later in history when technology and transportation infrastructure allowed people to move greater and greater distances. You know, in the 1700s, you move from one village, you move five miles further out into the frontier, that's a generation of movement. You go into the mid-19th century and, you know, people, you know, born in New York are then settling out in Montana. And you can make that trip in a few days instead of a few generations. So that means your settler effect is getting shorter and shorter time periods for the first settlers to have the area to themselves, in quotes, to establish the norms of society. So when you get out into that middle zone of the country, sort of out where the Great Plains start nestling into areas where you could still irrigate and nod on the 100th line, you know, you get sort of the middle of Kansas, the middle of Nebraska, the middle of the Dakotas, that area gets a lot fuzzier, the signal to noise. But the most critical spots are central Florida and Los Angeles and Southern California. There are places where undeniably, you know, the northern and central parts of Florida were founded by deep Southerners, but not until the 19th century, and their numbers were tiny. And then in central Florida, around Orlando and such, there weren't that many people around. And then in the 20th century, suddenly gazillions of people, many of them weren't deep Southern, moved there. So there's one area where you might say, is central Florida really the deep South anymore? Well, I'd say maybe it's not, right? I think that that's an area where the first settler effects may have been disrupted. I don't know what it is, but I'm not sure it's deep south. Northern Florida absolutely is, but central Florida, I don't know. Los Angeles and the south, I mean, absolutely was settled, you know, in the El Norte way. Uh, they were during the territorial period in California after annexation. And for a long time in history, there were three power bases discussed in California among contemporaries. There was the Spanish-speaking you know, elite around Southern California. There was the Americans, in quotes, in the San Francisco area. And then there was sort of the interior. And those were the three power bases of politics. But again, you get to the 1950s and suddenly gazillions of people moved to the Los Angeles area and transformed it very rapidly. People from all over the world and all over the country. Is it still El Norte? Actually, I think it is. I think that the underlying culture is going to survive and kind of win out overall. But, you know, those are the challenging places to look at. And there are places where the first settler effects were wiped out, like the upstate of New York, the Dutch commercial globalized 
you know, Haniastic city-state style society that was created in the 17th century extended not just in the greater New York City area, but up the Hudson Valley into Albany and Schenectady. The patroons on both sides of the Hudson had these estates. But with the Dutch defeat in the 1670s, there was this massive wave of New Englanders who just flowed into upstate New York and essentially like a wave just wiped out that relatively thin settlement of the Dutch on the ground. Didn't do so in the lower Hudson Valley, but you can have those shifts. There was a new Sweden colony, again, kind of disappeared and shifted. There are parts of the Spanish settled zone in far eastern Texas that kind of got wiped out and pushed out by the deep southerners flowing in after the annexation of Texas. San Francisco Bay, technically, first settlers would have been you know, some small missions there, but the 49ers and the gold rush wiped out and pushed back the El Norte cultural effects. So, you know, in extreme circumstances and where things are recent and signal to noise gets tougher and tougher, yeah, it can happen, but by and large, it rarely does. You somehow omitted an opportunity to invoke one of my favorite lines about American politics, that in Florida, the further south you go, the further north you get. <laughs> uh, it's certainly true when you start from the north of Florida. To shift gears a little bit, you have another sort of way of thinking through American history, which still retains its relevance today as well. And that's to really think about a conflict between the pursuit of individual liberty and the collective good, both of which are concepts which are thought about and invoked by the framers of a constitution and which, you know, in various ways you can trace through to today as a competition of ideas, sometimes between different political parties, sometimes between different kinds of notions of what America is or should be. Help me think through why you think this particular conflict of values, rather than a whole set of other diets that we could construct, is so central to understanding American history and understanding the delineations of our political conflict until today. Yeah, the book I wrote after American Nations was called American Character. And it was essentially asking the question, what have we been fighting over, really, and how could we resolve it? And in essence, my argument is that, that we've been fighting over how do you pursue this liberal democratic experiment that some of us set ourselves out on in the creation of the Declaration of Independence and that idea that we're going to try to create a society where individuals can be as free as you can and still maintain a free society. Do you do that through maximizing individual liberty and personal autonomy and freedom from government and taxation and obligation? Is it not true that the more free an individual is and the weaker the government is, the stronger the freedoms of the individual? Is that not an axiom? Or is it that you're trying to build and maintain a free society? And that argument goes that no, the only way you could even contemplate individual freedom is because of 5,000 years of human civilization slowly building up the infrastructure and possibilities, the gossamer-like construction that allows people to even dream of the idea of individuals being free and not living in tyranny like we have throughout history. That it's an incredible creation, a cultural artifact, a garden that you have to carefully maintain and fertilize over time. You have to cultivate a Republican citizenry and make and remake the investments in the cultural and social and physical infrastructure that make it possible for individuals regardless of the matter of their birth, will have a shot at being meaningfully free. 
Otherwise, you're going to sink into an aristocracy very quickly, right? Everything accrues to the the big dog gets more and more stuff, and pretty soon there's nothing left for anyone else, and you're back to despotism. So how do you do that? And that argument is when individual liberty and the common good come into conflict, you're going on the common good side of things. And the different regional cultures identified in American nations have very different stances on where the proper spot should be in individual liberty versus the common good. And I make the argument in American character that liberal democracy, both of those forces are really important. Those are the two big factors of freedom. And where a liberal democracy is functioning and is optimized is when you've got those two things, individual liberty and the common good in equilibrium. But that's really hard. To use a football analogy, how do you keep it on the 50-yard line? It's much harder than running to one extreme or the other. And you don't want to run to the extremes because both extremes are tyranny. Right? You go down the individual liberty extreme and remove all taxes and government regulation, and pretty soon you create a society where you know the big dog kills everybody else and you're living in an oligarchy like the eight families or the 14 families in Guatemala or Honduras that control everything, land, police, government, kill anyone who gets in their way, right? Or create a state so weak that then the narco lords can knock them off and control the state. Or, so that's bad, but in the other direction, you go down that common good direction too far with no reference to individual liberty, and pretty soon you wind up with Stalin and Hitler, where the keepers of the common good, the fatherland, the party, are going to wipe out idiosyncratic thinking and any individual complications to their interpretation of the common good, and pretty soon you end up with slaughter and genocides and all the rest. So both of those are bad. Oligarchy and Orwell are both awful things. So logically, somewhere in the middle, each society has an equilibrium point where those things are in balance. And the problem for us is that our regional cultures do not at all agree on that spot. And the battle up until recently, I mean, we're living in a new era now, we can talk about that in a minute. But up until recently, the conversation was essentially between those two forces, between a libertarian argument and a communitarian argument about how to pursue the promise of freedom. And, you know, all of our political choices were basically, each region is going for the party that matches their stance on individual, you know, libertarian versus communitarian. So you had the, you know, the Federalists facing off against the Democratic Republicans, and then you had the Whigs facing off against the Jacksonians, and then you had the the Democrats from the 1850s through the 1960s as the party of uh, libertarian individualism against the communitarian Republicans of the 1860s through that time period. And then they swapped, right? Now the Republicans are the less taxes, less government will make you free, and the Democrats are the party of communitarian investment. And when each of those shifts happens, you look at the regional maps and the affinity of those region swaps, right? The map of the 1916 presidential election between Woodrow Wilson and Charles Hughes and the map of, you know, any recent election, you know, Obama versus McCain or whatever you want to look at, is basically the same map with the colors reversed because the parties had reversed polarity on those key issues. So that's the big struggle in, in finding that equilibrium point. And I discuss a bit about where that lies. In shorthand is it's essentially, you know, as a federation, we're never going to go for social democracy in a, you know, Scandinavian or Dutch or kind of way, not because you can't create a free society perfectly well doing that, but because that just doesn't jive with the consensus point on individual liberty. We're too individualistic as a group, but you can have a, call it national liberalism, a step before that, where there's a dynamic society with a free competition of individuals and ideals and may the best idea an individual win. 
but that free competition has to be fair. You got to have referees tough enough to stop the cheaters and to also ensure that the people coming onto the bench, that you can get to play ball regardless of whether you were born in crappy circumstances or great ones, because otherwise you end up in an aristocracy. So you got to keep reinvesting to make that possible. So that's kind of middle ground. And if you tease out where all the regional cultures lie, you can create a supermajority regional coalition around a certain set of ideals that actually are kind of close to where the Biden administration has come to. I wrote that book in you know 2015. It came out in 2016. But Biden's sort of stance kind of matches up with that fairly well in terms of uh, your general propositions about what kind of society you're creating and you know how communitarian or libertarian is it. Yeah, and I mean, it strikes me on the point of something like the Scandinavian welfare state that there's actually much more variation between the strength of welfare states in different parts of the United States than people often recognize. And when you're in Massachusetts, you're not exactly in Sweden, but you're much closer to a kind of European social democratic welfare state than when you are in some of the parts of Appalachia and so on that have historically been more on the individual freedom side of the ledger for the reasons you outlined. So here too, I find that this historical lens through understanding our politics today is really fruitful and, and it helps to teach me a lot. It's very suggestive. Let me try and push back on one point here as well, which is, can we really class Democrats and Republicans, not just today, we'll get to that in a moment, let's say 20 or 30 years ago, so easily into Democrats being the party of a common good and Republicans being the party of individual freedom. I think when you go back to the time of Ronald Reagan, or the time of Barack Obama, that sort of works on the economy, right? When you talk about economic issues, I think it's quite clear that there is a party which says, well, of course, individual freedom is important, but you know what we really need in America is a little bit more common good, a little bit more making sure that everybody has health insurance, that you know we're looking out for well, as fortunate in our society. And you have a party on the other hand that says, no, 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 that's coming close to creeping towards some form of tyranny, or at least it's going to undermine the kind of dynamism we need for individuals to be rewarded when they do great things. And so let's let's keep that kind of stuff in check. That works quite neatly for me in economic policy. But I wonder whether even in that relatively recent era of our politics, both can feel very historic, on cultural issues was a little bit less clear because on cultural issues, even then, it would often have been the Republicans who were saying, look, we need to inculcate certain kinds of communal values in our children. And one of the reasons for the success of our country is a set of moral religious values. And so, of course, we should have school prayer. And of course, we should make sure that children aren't corrupted by explicit lyrics and songs and by coarse public culture. And so it's appropriate to have certain kinds of limits on individual freedom in the name of the collective good in those realms, whereas it would have been Democrats who were saying at the time, no, 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 we have a party that strongly believes in individual freedom. We have a party that believes that even if 95% of a school community want to pray in school, that is inappropriate because it violates the liberty of conscience of one or two students potentially. So isn't one way of thinking about this that for much of that stretch, Democrats were more concerned with a common good on the economy and more concerned with individual freedom on culture. And Republicans were more concerned with the common good and culture and more concerned with individual freedom and the economy, rather than just sort of splitting them you know, broadly across all of those realms. 
Yeah, I mean, I think you raise a good point, and that's one way of looking at it. I mean, the complication becomes with the parties is because we have this, you know, two-party system, you have these bizarre coalitions. So I would argue that the people who really were in the driving seat up until recently in the Republican Party, what actually got done was the tax cuts for the wealthy and, you know, deregulating business and all that kind of stuff. You know, there wasn't that much actual action on the federal stage on the other things, but they needed to keep that part of the coalition together. It's a really weird coalition where the Republicans, you know, end up with libertarians and, you know, the religious right, you know, two groups that in Europe would have separate parties and have little to do with each other. And the Democrats have, you know, labor and, you know, the bankers, right? So that's, that's not the usual coalitions, right? But you only have two choices. So you get all kinds of irregular and strange bedfellows and coalitions, because if we were in a parliamentary system, you'd have you know eight or nine parties that would make a lot more sense. But I would say who's in the driver's seat and what policies are actually getting done is kind of where I would draw the bottom line on those things. But you raise an excellent point because we don't live in that world anymore. I mean, certainly by 2016, it's no longer a conversation about how do we best have a liberal democracy. It's are we going to have a liberal democracy or some kind of, you know, authoritarian ethno state? And we're at that precipice. And that didn't just start out of nowhere in 2016. It was building on things which you're also describing in there. And the idea of, you know, is there going to be rule of law? Is there one way to be an American, one religion and that that um, is better than the others or is more real than the others or one ethnicity? And all of those things were fomenting and percolating out there for a long time before Trump burst onto the scene. And that's the struggle we're in now is essentially a struggle between liberal democracy, small L, small D, and some kind of authoritarian and ethno-nationalist for lack of a better word, construction, where who belongs in America is much more narrowly defined than in the past. Yeah, so help me think through where we're at at this moment. I mean, one of the questions to ask about the Republican Party, beyond the obvious concern about the way in which figures like Donald Trump now dominate the party and just have no respect for traditional rules and norms of liberal democracy, is whether they represent a turning point from the Republicans' position on individual freedom versus the common good. You know, one way of thinking about the contrast between somebody like Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump is that Ronald Reagan was, despite my sort of objection earlier, quite clearly on the side of individual freedom rather than the common good. Certainly, as in his famous quote, that the scariest words in the English language are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help, somebody who really was pushing against the role of government. Trump himself is not very worried about the government when he's in charge of it, as is the nature of politicians who have an authoritarian bent. They're not scared of a government because they want to use the tools of a government in order to impose themselves on others. But if you're being more charitable and looking at some of the quote-unquote intellectual leaders of the kind of MAGA riot, people perhaps like Sora Bahmari, they are trying to turn the Republican Party into a force of working-class politics that is saying, hey, you know what? We actually need to use the tools of the state to make sure that corporations don't have that much power, to make sure that workers get better wages again. I mean, do you think that's completely epiphenomenal? It certainly seems to be epiphenomenal to how Republicans in Congress tend to vote today. Or do you think that is the seeds of a reorientation 
where one of those sort of historical flips happen and the Republican Party 20, 30 years from now, if those parts of a party really win, is going to stop being firmly on the side of individual liberty and may instead start to be on the side of its version, which is probably not going to be a particularly attractive version to me, but its version of what it thinks stands in the common good. Yeah, I think the thread is that that conversation is not the conversation now, right? The individual liberty versus common good, that Trump was able to come in and to the surprise of the Republican establishment and the other 17 candidates in 2016 who were running for the nomination, he wasn't arguing, I'm going to lower taxes and uh, got regulations and make you more free. Donald Trump was making the most communitarian promises of any Republican candidate since, you know, probably Eisenhower, maybe Nixon, but going way, way back, right? He wasn't saying any of those things, and the other 17 were. He was saying, I'm somehow going to use the powers of my office and the federal government to reverse the creation of the Rust Belt in the Midwest. You know, I'm going to take Obamacare, I'm going to replace it with something cheaper and better. He made these incredible promises and wasn't talking the, I'm going to cut uh, taxes and all the rest. And guess what happened? I mean, he kept the red zones, if you want to say it that way. But what allowed him, if you compare Mitt Romney's performance in 2012 with Donald Trump's and say, where did Donald Trump outperform Mitt Romney? I mean, he performed about the same on almost the entire map, but there's key spots where he performed better. And what they boil down to is in communitarian Yankeedom, all sorts of rural areas flipped to him. And places that had voted by big margins for Barack Obama in both of the previous elections flipped and voted for big margins for Trump in both 2016 and 2020. These are places like the second district of Maine, where I live, like parts of upstate New York, and especially that area in the Midwest, in the upper Mississippi Valley, where four states come together, Illinois, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Iowa, right? That was always voting blue, even though it was white, not particularly affluent and rural, you know, people who are supposed to be conservative in quotes, uh, had been Democrats, all flipped that. And my argument throughout has been that communitarian promise on the campaign trail allowed him to flip those regions because he wasn't speaking from the script and he destroyed the entire Republican field who were. In other words, he was able to peel off support in that individual liberty common good way in the common good zones just enough to flip a bunch of electoral winner-take-all states. That is really interesting for a number of reasons. I mean, one of the sort of pieces of conventional wisdom is that Hillary took those places for granted, particularly the electorally relevant ones in the Midwestern states that Trump ended up winning by a few votes, and that you know, if only she'd campaigned there, it would have been better. There's some reasons in political science to doubt that, because there doesn't seem to be a clear correlation between where candidates hold campaign rallies and how much of a vote they gain in different counties within a state. But what you're saying is a more profound version of that, which is A, that Donald Trump was appealing to some of those collectivist impulses and instincts in a way that other Republicans had not, and that made them vulnerable. And perhaps if you want to look at the flip side, you might argue that some of the Democrats' individualist emphasis on culture made those places vulnerable to vote switching because they may have felt alienated from them because their more collectivist approach to culture felt in tension with what they were getting from Democrats as well. I don't know if you agree with that. 
Maybe, but Obama had those same positions and they supported him by large margins. But what there was a um, significant problem was that Hillary Clinton, while essentially running as Obama's successor, was able to be painted with her husband, Bill Clinton's, you know, neoliberal in quotes. He, uh, Bill Clinton shifted a lot to the individual liberty side for a Democrat when he was in office. You know, some of it compelled by circumstances, but, you know, he's the one who pushed NAFTA through with Republican support and, you know, helped deregulate the financial industry and a bunch of other stuff. And both Bernie Sanders in the primary race and Trump in the general election were able to paint Hillary Clinton as being cruel policies that had hurt you people in the upper Midwest and the Rust Belt. So that allowed him to erode because he had a uh, candidate he could do that with. And Bernie, look at how well Bernie Sanders did with that same argument, right? The communitarian insurgent in the Democratic primaries who did surprisingly well that year, again, fueled by the same stuff. And there were a lot of Sanders to Trump crossover voters, you know, a significant number as well. You know, I can't remember 12, 13 percent or something of his supporters voted for Trump in the general and in those states, which is enough to be the margin of victory. I mean, it may not have played out that way, but, you know, it's a significant number of people because that was motivating a lot of people. And I will also say, and remember, it was only rural areas of Yankeedom because the flip side of Donald Trump is his ethno-national authoritarian stuff. There are targeted groups who are the enemy, the other who is foiling America, those terrible journalists and Mexican-American judges and people from the shithole countries and whatever he's identified as the, the other who is going to be excluded from his you know, real Americans thing. The danger of that, if you live in a homogenous, generally white rural community, you're not the target group. Your people you work with aren't in the targeted groups. Your kids aren't going to school. Their friends aren't in the targeted groups. But if you're a white person living in an urban or suburban part of Yankeedom that's more diverse, you absolutely are aware of the targeting, right? So I think that those rural areas, I don't think they were racism explains how those areas flipped. He's got a huge racist base, but those areas were areas that voted for Barack Obama twice by big margins. So, you know, Racial animosity can't be like the deciding factor that caused him to flip, but discounting the danger of that side of things, I think, was what made those areas flip when urban areas in Yankeedom did not. I could debate the intricacies of a 2016 election at infinitum. I agree with much of what you said. I have some disagreements, but I want to make sure that we end the conversation on a more forward-thinking note, which is that you've also been thinking through how America has had a national narrative that has historically allowed it to hold together, despite all of those historical divides you've been talking about. So what is that national narrative? Why does it feel particularly powerless at the moment? Why does it feel like it's not managing to hold the nation together as well right now as it has been at other junctures of American history and and how much of a hope do we have that we can rejuvenate this narrative in the kind of way that will allow us to at least survive these fractious divisions? That's the essential question because you know humans are a storytelling species. You know, we think of ourselves, we build the world around us, our understanding of our identity, of our nation and what it means and our allegiance to it are all through the stories we tell ourselves. And right now, we don't really have a good story of the United States. Why should the red states and blue states stay together? Why should the regional cultures I talk about in American nations belong to one country? And I think they should and need to because the alternatives are 
scary and potentially disastrous. But to do that, we need to really get our act together as to what we stand for and what the answers to those questions are. And that's complicated by the fact that we started this country without a story, right? A group of rival colonies got together, fought a war to protect their own individual societies from imperial intrusion. Lo and behold, they won, and they were in something called the United States together, and no one knew what that was. And even after the Constitution was written, still nobody really knew what that was. What is the United States? What does it mean to be an American separate from being in a convenient trade alliance or defense alliance? You know, is it an EU and a NATO, or is it really going to be a nation state? And they had no answers. They had to come up with a story of what America is about its supposed shared past, about who belongs and where it's going after the fact. And they didn't really get started doing it until the 1830s because the absence of a story was the the forces that were breaking the country up were starting to become obvious. Slavery wasn't going away. The tension between the words in the Declaration and the existence of the slave system and a part of the country ascribing to classical republicanism, right? Ancient Greece and Rome were a small group of people have the privilege of uh, practicing democracy, and most people were in servitude or slavery. You know, those tensions couldn't be tolerated anymore. So starting in the 1830s, there started being a battle between America defined as being committed to a shared set of ideals in the Declaration, or America defined in ethno-cultural terms. Originally, we're the ethno-states of the superior Anglo-Saxon race full stop, and everyone else is here provisionally. That's the battle of the antebellum period, of the Civil War, where 750,000 people died, of Reconstruction. And you know, when you follow it, at what point did one of those forces finally win consensus across the Federation? The answer, frighteningly enough, is that ethno-national white supremacist version in the 1910s and 1920s. That's when we first had a consensus point, and it wasn't a good one. And it wasn't until the 1960s that that civic national narrative won a grand consensus across the regions. That's in living memory. So the problem is, is we've had a contested narrative from the beginning, and the forces that Trump is tapping on, the footings of that go back as far as our good narrative. That's why it's so dangerous and destabilizing, and why we really have to get our act together in knowing again how to talk about the ideals the country is supposed to be about, and to be able to talk about them in terms that people can understand, right? What those words in the Declaration mean, it wasn't communicated very well in the 18th century. It's never been communicated very well. And after the Cold War, we stopped talking about it at all, right? It was capitalism defeats communism, not liberal democracy defeats authoritarianism. And so we ran off in globalization and states weren't going to matter and national narratives weren't going to matter. And it was all going to wither away as capital and people moved around. Hey, turns out none of that is true. History did not end in that respect. And so getting our act together to talk about how do you talk about those ideals now in the 21st century? How do you talk about them to real people you know, low information voters in real contexts in a way that is inspiring and true is an existentially important question. And is what this think tank project, Nationhood Lab, we're doing exactly that and actually like message testing and doing all of the work to figure out here's how you talk about it. And, and maybe you talk about it differently in greater Appalachia than you do in Yankeedom. Same story, but you may frame it and go about it slightly differently. So that's you know an essential task to be the story about the society that the rest of us who don't want to live in 
Trump's envisioned great America, what our society looks like and why. The policies that we might be backing lead us there, and that's why we're backing them. Colin Woodard, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please mail suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.